Prohibition of demand-driven products like drugs and alcohol and prostitution often comes with unintended consequences. This conversation explores the unintended harms of criminalizing the trade in human organs and whether prohibition of the trade is ethically sound. I speak with Professor Frederike Ambux-Hare, who's currently researching organ trafficking at Erasmus MC Transplant Institute in the Netherlands. We discuss what's currently known about the illegal trade in human kidneys and other organs. What impact does criminalization have on human suffering and what might evidence-based alternatives to prohibition look like? I'm Shane Farnsworth, and this is the Escape Sapiens podcast. These conversations are supported by the Andrea von Brown Foundation. If you enjoy what I'm doing, please consider subscribing, liking, and sharing this content. And now, here's Frederike Ambaxherr. I hope you enjoy. Escaped Sapiens. There's two things that I, I want to talk about primarily today. So two, two main goals. Uh, the first thing is, I have sort of a media representation of what the illegal organ trade is in my head. And so my first goal is I want to get an idea for what the realistic organ trade looks like in practice. So that, that's one of the first goals. And the second is I want to explore how effective prohibition is. So I want to, I want to know if there are perhaps more nuanced approaches to regulation that might lead to more harm reduction than just banning the organ trade outright. So that's sort of the two things I want to start with. But before all that, just very briefly and sort of to, to kick things off, what distinguishes illegal organ transplantation from the legal variety? And, and what, what percentage of transplants are of the illegal variety? Uh, well, very broadly speaking, uh, it is the non-payment principle for organs that would distinguish um, globally the legal transplants from illegal transplantations. The non-payment principle being that uh, we are not allowed to buy organs, we're not allowed to sell them, we're not allowed to broker them uh, or recruit individuals to sell or to buy, we're not allowed to facilitate transplants that have been, that involve organs that have been bought from people or that are being sold on to others. Um, so that is, first of all, one of the main general distinctions. And the other would be that um, if there is exploitation involved, that would definitely also be an considered an illegal transplantation. And in terms of numbers, there is one very rough estimate that has been um, given by the World Health Organization in 2007. It's been reproduced since then as the main metric when it comes to the scope of the organ trade worldwide. However, there is not a lot of data to support this estimation because we are dealing with a dark number. There's no database that allows us to quantify or estimate um, reliably how many illegal transplants are actually performed. But according to the WHO, uh, the World Health Organization, it's roughly five to 10% of all transplants worldwide, which amounts to roughly five to 10,000 illegal transplants per year. And is there, is there a difference legally between the commercialization? So there doesn't seem to be a difference between the commercialization and trafficking. They're sort of all bundled together. Uh, yes. So both exportation and payments for organs. Is, is the, so what's the reason then for the illegal? Is, is, there, is it just there aren't enough organs? Or what, why is it that there, there needs to be a trade? Or why is the trade successful? 
I mean, definitely the scarcity of organs worldwide that are available for transplantation is uh, one of the main explanations that there is organ trade. But it would probably be too simple to say that that is the only explanation because it wouldn't explain why in some parts of the world we see or we hear about more organ trading than in other parts. Um, and obviously there is a whole complex play of factors that 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 play a role in causing the organ trade. So also migration, conflict, um, corrupt governments, um, all these factors you can also see as possible explanations for the organ trade, or at least opportunities for organ trading. I know that, so I was reading uh, sometime back about after the Battle of Waterloo, people were scavenging the dead bodies for teeth and using them in all sorts of dental operations. And these became known as the Waterloo teeth. Has there been an uptick? Do people know if, if there's been an uptick following, for example, the migrant crisis into Europe or, or the local conflict in Ukraine? Or do you often see that happening or is it not known? There's definitely evidence that uh, those who sell their organs are more likely to have a migration background and uh, Sean Collum, a very uh, talented researcher from Ireland working in the UK, he has exposed this issue actually. He, he was the first to expose this in Egypt, where he interviewed um, refugees, migrants from Sudan, Eritrea, Somalia, Ethiopia, um, who uh, sold their kidneys in Egypt. Um, and some of them used that money to pay smugglers in order to facilitate entry into Europe. Uh, so from Africa, we know that it, it is happening. And then we also see signals from other migration routes, let's say from Iran, Iraq, Syria, Turkey, through uh, Greece into Europe. What is the what does the path look like for someone to become a donor? Is it so in my mind, the image I have is that coercion and and um, maybe threats and, and at least trickery are used to get people to donate their organs. But is is um, is this idea of trafficking sort of a little bit fluid in the sense that some people also come forward on their own and approach um, sort of buying networks? So how how does what's what's the standard picture actually look like from the donor's side? Yeah. Well, let, let me maybe first be clear on terms and definitions, because I know that okay. there are some people out there who have problems with the word donor or donation, because for many, it mm -hmm. implies some form of altruistic donation that is that doesn't involve payment. Um, I do use the terms of seller and donor interchangeably mm -hmm. in some of my research. But just to be clear, there is a um, living kidney donation is a accepted practice globally and involves a lot of living kidney donors that are accepted as donors to donate their kidneys legally into the system. Uh, but when we speak of organ trade, just to keep it clear for those who are listening, that it is the sellers that we're speaking of, those who sell their kidneys. Uh, so for them, we know based on the available research that we've been doing, at least for um, networks that have some form of org organized illegal transplantations, they prefer, so recruiters, brokers, Doc, rogue doctor or doc, um, doctors who facilitate illegal transplants, they prefer to use advertisements, let's say, in, in newspapers, um, but mainly also online, where they post the opportunity for people to sell. And they mm -hmm. just wait until they are approached. 
And this is a very sophisticated way of recruitment because let's say if the case is identified and investigated by the police, it is a bit more difficult than to prove there was exportation because the seller voluntarily, in quotation marks, wanted to um, sell his or her uh, kidney. Um, so I have never come across a case where someone was physically forced into selling. Usually subtle ploys are used. Um, the promise of money is used to recruit individuals who then willingly or voluntarily consent to um, sell their kidney. And again, I mean in quotation marks. Do those individuals, is it usually then that in country those people will undergo a procedure or do they get then get flown? What, what does the journey look like from coming forward and, and answering an advert uh, to being on the operating table? D does that journey take a long time? Are there, are there checks done for patient diseases or any complications that might arise? How does it look uh, to them on the, on the, again, the seller end? Well, we're just only now learning about the different phases of the organ trade. And what we're learning is that it has many different facets that it that you can see it raises a lot, that it takes place along a spectrum of different types of for, forms of organ trade uh, involving very organized forms, transnational, uh, global forms of recruitment and travel and, and so forth. But we also know that there are smaller forms of organ trade involving only two, maybe three ind individuals that take place very locally. So it's important to, to make this remark that not all forms of or organ trade can be put under one label or under mm -hmm. one header. Um, but we do know that the more organized forms of organ trading involving criminal networks that collaborate on a transnational basis, that they prefer conducting um, a, uh, living donor kidney transplantations, meaning that they indeed recruit donors and recipients, the recipients being the patients who buy, um, and then um, enabling them to travel, usually to a third country. So there would be the country where the donor comes from, the country where the recipient comes from, and then the country where the illegal transplantation actually takes place. And that normally would take place on the same day. So first you have the donor nephrectomy, where you remove the kidney um, from the donor and then immediately transplant it into the recipient, which is really not that different from how a legal living donor kidney transplantation takes place. Um, locally, nationally, within countries. But but so if I understand right, the all of these, the majority that you know about it happening in real hospitals with real surgeons who are qualified. Um, is it always with surgeons that are qualified to do those surgeries or is it also being done sort of in hospitals by, I, I guess what I'm curious about is from from the picture I have, when you talk about these cases with large networks, which involve multiple countries and, and potentially very powerful people, or maybe even the, the up, higher ups in the hospital staff, um, I, I sort of I sort of wonder how these networks start. Whether they start off with with a doctor who just has sort of the idea of making a bit more money, or, or is it organized crime that then ropes in? um doctors what's what's the picture there do you, do you know it's it's quite difficult to research the uh the embeddedness within the medical sector and the the motivations of why doctors are doing this we, we're still trying to actually you know reach out to doctors to see if they are willing to speak to us about this 
Um, let me first say that all of the cases that have been officially reported, so official criminal cases reported by countries to organizations like the UN or the um, or the WHO, all these cases, if you look at them carefully, you will see that all illegal transplantations that were reported in those cases took place inside transplant hospitals, transplant clinics, and were performed by doctors who um, had the, the degrees, the licenses to do these transplantations. It doesn't mean that all organ trade cases happen this way. There might be mm -hmm. cases that we don't know about that happen outside of the medical sector. Um, but we're still trying to, you know, find information and data on, on that part of the organ trade. And there's very little research on the motivations. It, it would seem logical and easy to presume that profit, it's a very profit-driven in industry. We know that uh, donors receive roughly 10% of what the patient usually pays. Um, the highest amount that we know based on research that patients have paid is roughly 200,000 US dollars. Mm -hmm. And uh, the highest amount that kidney sellers have received um, that we know about is roughly 20,000 US dollars. So depending on the size of the network, uh, the number of middlemen, the number of people that are in between donors and sellers, you can kind of roughly calculate how much you know, money is left for, for those, not just the doctors, but also brokers and recruiters. Um, but we also know based on research that in some countries, um, the, the idea that payments for organs is immoral is quite Western based. Mm -hmm. um, you could argue there's been a lot of criticism of organ, uh, of payments, of, of the prohibition for payments for organs. And we know that in some countries it is considered unethical not to pay, not to reward mm -hmm. living kidney donors for saving a patient's life. Um, so we know, for instance, in Egypt, where this research has been done, that there, there's very different views of, 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 payments, more morality and organ donation than in Western countries, let's say. Would you say that's a main reason why certain countries become hotspots? In other words, uh, because as far as I understood, almost all, all over the world, these practices are legal. But um, are there, for example, in Egypt, countries where the state itself sort of turns a blind eye because the moral makeup of the societies somehow sees it uh, as being less of a issue? Um, I think or is it mainly not, financially driven? Sorry for interrupting. It, yeah, no, it's not the only reason I think where we have certain hotspots and even those hotspots we know because there just happened to be research there exposing the mm -hmm. issue. Uh, we have no idea about countries where, you know, organ trade might take place on quite a large scale, but it just never has been researched by people like me or by journalists journalists or other types of uh, organizations. We don't know whether that is the main reason why there are hotspots around, you know, where there are designated hotspots for organ training. We know, yes, that there are some countries that are popular for patients uh, to go to for mm. transplantation. But it would be e too easy to say that in many countries where people condone payments or where doctors turn a blind eye, that that would be the explanation for it being a hotspot. Even in the Netherlands, we know that um, we have patients who have gone abroad and came back with implanted kidneys. 
and they were very vague about how they obtained these kidneys, whether they had purchased them, whether they had obtained them in some other kind of illegal way. And the doctors who treated these patients, they also were found to kind of treat a blind eye and were saying, well, we have, you know, a secrecy oath, we're not allowed to report them anyway. And to be very honest, I don't want to know. I don't want to know whether they actually bought that kidney from a poor farmer in Pakistan because I don't want to feel guilty. Um, so even in Western countries, we know that there is willful blindness amongst transplant professionals. As far as I understand, so I read through your thesis before this talk, and so I saw that you, or at least your team, had interviewed buyers. And I was wondering if, uh, if I read correctly, <laughs> and I was wondering if um, in sort of these interviews, if the buyers themselves showed remorse afterwards, how do they view the situation? I mean, they, they either have to buy or, or maybe die if they can't find an organ. So, so how do they conceptualize what they've been through? And, and in general, do they also have a problem uh, with, with the purchase? Um, the patients that we interviewed never really framed it in terms of purchasing organs. They didn't show a lot of remorse either about uh, buying these organs. Uh, for them, it seemed like a natural thing to do. Um, and in many cases, they also didn't say that they had bought them. They had you know, told us that they received them from a relative, but there was no payment involved. And it is, it is very difficult to establish based on the available data that patients bring back whether an organ was in fact purchased um, or obtained illegally. And very frequently they will say that they received the organ from a relative, which m might very well be the case because we do mm -hmm. have patients who travel to countries where they were born or where they um, have a, a an affinity with culturally or where they have had a job in the past or have family or friends living. So they speak the language and they, they know people there who can help them with the transplantation. Uh, so who are we then also to think that they may have um, received these organs in a immoral way. Mm -hmm. I, I guess also for myself, uh, it's very hard for me to picture myself in the shoes of someone who requires an organ. And so it's very easy from my position to sort of, uh, you know, throw shade over people who have really, I mean, this is people who have to make very hard decisions themselves. Are you able to, are you able to sort of paint a picture of, for example, someone who needs a kidney. Um, what does the story look like on the buyer side for someone uh, who sort of how old are they in general? What sort of what medical problems do they have that give rise to the need for a kidney? Um, what's it like, for example, being on dialysis? Are you able to paint sort of a picture of what they go through before deciding to 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 try to purchase an organ? Uh, people who develop chronic renal failure are usually a bit older. So let's say, I mean, I don't know exactly the average age of, of um, kidney patients, um, but they do ge generally tend to be a bit older. But the the course or the, the prospects for these patients will vary a lot depending on where you live. Um, so it will make a huge difference whether you were born in Mali, let's say, and you develop chronic renal disease, but you don't have access to dialysis or transplantation, as opposed to being born in Sweden or the Netherlands, 
where the system doesn't only have a health insurance, but it, it is probably also more likely to get you a transplant. Um, in many countries where there is no treatment or where there is difficult access to treatment, it also will very much depend on how wealthy you are. Um, and of course, the length of the wait list for a transplantation, the degree to which a country uh, is willing to perform living kidney donations also makes a big difference. Uh, so there are some countries who have very low numbers, who are very reluctant to um, uh, to encourage living kidney donation, whilst other countries, and the Netherlands, where I am from, where I work, is an example thereof, are quite liberal uh, with encouraging living kidney transplantation. So for many patients, this is actually the preferred treatment. And mm -hmm. when somebody um, or has end-stage renal failure, he or she will probably be told that a living kidney donation is the best bet and he or she will be helped to find also a living kidney donor. Um, but this, this doesn't happen in all countries, unfortunately. If someone already has renal failure or some disease that means they need to um, have, for example, a kidney transplant, are they also more likely to damage a donated kidney? For what I mean by that is, are the, is the are they so will how long can they survive off the the donated kidney? Is that also going to le lead to? Um, destruction of the kidney and so they'll need another one and another one or how, how does this ha work? So very generally speaking um, if you receive a kidney from a deceased kidney donor that will last roughly 10 years um, because the body mm -hmm. does naturally reject the kidney which mm -hmm. is why patients have to have or take immunosuppressant drugs um, but very generally speaking on average a uh, deceased donor kidney would last probably around 10 years whilst the living donor kidney lasts 20 to 25 years um and so yeah there are many many reasons actually why countries prefer uh conducting living kidney donations also because the risk for the donors has greatly decreased over the last few years because we now um uh, extract kidneys in a laparoscopic way so we don't do it in the old-fashioned way anymore at least in many um, western countries uh, that involved a big in big incision and you would you know have to spend a week in the hospital to recover um, this doesn't really happen that frequently anymore uh, so the laparoscopic the laparoscopic way of removing a kidney means that you, if it's done well, if there is no um, complications, you can basically go home after two days. So it has also even become a routine procedure in many transplant hospitals, including the Erasmus Medical Center where I uh, work. Did, did you, is that also the case? So that's the case for legal transplants. And I, I guess the same system is in place for illegal transplants. Do, do you know from the cases that are known of uh, whether the, the sellers or the donors also have good treatment or, or what what does the outcome look like for someone on the donating or the selling yeah. end? In the criminal cases that I studied, uh, unfortunately, no, the donors were not treated well at all. Uh, so for instance, they were told that the procedure was completely free of any medical risk. Uh, we know there have been cases where donors weren't screened at all. Uh, so they were deceived in several ways, being told that they could easily live with one kidney, which is true. But if you are, let's say, a bonded laborer and you do very heavy physical and intensive work and you are discharged 
after the operation within two days uh, with a huge um, gap in your uh, stomach still because they don't do it laparoscopically on the black market. They, they do it the old fashioned way. Um, this, this raises a lot of concerns and problems for the donors who cannot afford to, um, uh, to recover and take the time that they need to go back to work to, 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 to get wages. Um, and what is also an important uh, explanation for why uh, donor, donor sellers are much worse off on the black market is because as a criminal network, as a doctor, having just performed an illegal transplant, you don't want your victims or witnesses to be at the hospital. You don't want them to be lying there, hanging around just in case there is a police investigation. So there is an interest in discharging your patients and your donors as fast as possible, um, which goes against all kinds of medical uh, norms and medical practice. But it makes me wonder, because I would think that if you have someone who gets sick, that's also a signal that something terrible has gone on. Uh, isn't it sort of a risk to have people leave the hospital and then show signs of problems? Or are these people who are so poorly and, and so low in power that it doesn't really matter what happens to them as long as they're outside the hospital? It's I mean, they don't have enough power to complain. It's a very interesting point that you raise because this is in fact how one large criminal case that was in the media a lot, it was the Medicus case that was exposed in Kosovo. It's, it's how it became known to, to the police and to other people because uh, one of the donors after arriving at the airport and he was scheduled to fly, to fly back, um, he kind of fainted or collapsed at the airport um, and uh, he showed the custom officials and the police his scar and then admitted that, yeah, he had traveled to Kosovo for a kidney sale, uh, which is how the case came to light. Um, and it does raise all kinds of questions like why would this network take such risks? Um, and after studying this case, we what one of the conclusions that we did make is that there was kind of some st form of state condonements, uh, tolerance from state officials. Uh, which makes one believe that the, the doctors and the brokers that were involved in this case felt like they could just get away with it. It, it makes me wonder what the benefit is to the state because, um, so for instance, if, if, you, if you have someone who's on a dialysis machine, that might be very expensive. Whereas when you, you get someone back who's just gone overseas and, and received in a... Uh, a kidney, say, in, 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 in sort of a clandestine way, that may actually reduce the burden on the local state. Is, is there, are there mechanisms like that, like benefits that I'm not seeing that uh, would, would sort of uh, incentivize states to, you know, not intervene? Um, we, we really still need to uncover so much on state condoned crimes in general, but specifically with regards to the organ trade, we know too little to, to actually make any kind of statements on the degree to which states even know or tolerate it. Um, but there is one example that I can give you that was in Israel, actually, where health insurance companies would um, cover the costs of transplantations of Israeli patients abroad, regardless of their illegitimacy. Um, and this happened until 2008 when the Medicus case actually was exposed because this involved Israeli recipients 
who were able to pay huge sums for their transplants, um, even though they were illegal because their medical um, health insurance companies were covering the bulk of those costs. And the reason why health insurance companies did that was because it's much cheaper to have a patient being transplanted rather than covering the dialysis costs, which in Western countries amounts to roughly $80,000 per year. So it is one of the most expensive healthcare treatments there is. Um, but in Israel, they they ban they they banned the practice, and it, it they're they've been very very strict. That you actually we we've seen a huge drop of transplant tourists from Israel as a result. Um, and I'm not aware of any other health insurance companies that wittingly uh, cover cost of transplants performed abroad. So there's basically no downside for the buyer. I mean, they don't even have to pay <laughs> in these particular cases. In, in Israel, they did have to pay some, but not, not all. Like it was a small sum that patients had to pay and their families. Or, and there were charity organizations involved in raising the funds for these. But yeah, if they wouldn't have gone abroad, they probably would have died. So it, it is in, it, there, there is a big moral, an underlying moral issue there too. It's where patients are faced with the dilemma to, to die or to buy. Um, Can, so they can't survive indefinitely on dialysis? Is, is that? No. The, the survival rates, so if you're above 60 years old, um, mm -hmm. the chances of surviving dialysis, and usually your waiting time starts with the dialysis treatments. But if you're 60 years or older, your chances of surviving the wait on dialysis is 25%. Um, this number is higher if you're younger, but it's 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 dire. It's it's something that people I don't think are aware of. But chronic renal failure it, it's quite endemic. Roughly 10% of the world's population is estimated to suffer from that, which amounts to 800 million people. There is an estimated two to seven million deaths per year um, of patients passing away from chronic renal failure because they don't have access to proper treatment. But these are numbers. It's it's not news anymore. So people aren't shocked by them anymore. But so ten percent of the world have problems with their kidneys. That's that's enormous. Is yeah. why why don't we know what stage is is the level of disease? Is this people who are going to die from this condition, or is this low lying symptoms, or what does it look like for these ten percent? No, it's, it's with it's with chronic renal failure, meaning that if you don't get treatment, and especially if it goes into end stage renal failure, which means that your kidneys function roughly maybe for seventeen percent, uh, it means you need to have dialysis or a kidney transplantation, and if not, you will die. And I suppose in many parts of the world, there's really no access to dialysis as well. Uh, exactly. I don't know from the top of my head how many countries actually offer dialysis treatments. My guess is that even many countries that do offer them, you would need to be very rich in order to afford um, continuing frequent dialysis treatments. Um, and in terms of transplants, roughly 70 to 75 countries worldwide, which is less than half, actually mm -hmm. offers kidney transplantation. And, and does this result from, um, for instance, diabetes or is it nutrition or what leads to these sort of conditions? There is a range of factors that um, that play a role. Um, of course, diabetes is one, um, or obesity as well. Um, not having proper access to healthy foods, or not being able to afford healthy foods. So we know that especially people with, as we would say, ha having a lower social economic status are more likely to 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 get sick. 
And so if if I'm someone, say, let's say 65 years old, who's on a dialysis, you're luckily you're lucky enough to get access to a dialysis machine. What is that? Is your health deteriorating through that process? And so you're every day seeing what's happening to yourself. And, and I mean, this is the sort of thing that I can imagine would prompt people to really seek out uh, alternatives. Yeah, I mean, let me be clear that without dialysis, you will pass away. So it is, it is, we, we should be, we're very happy and grateful that it is there. It, it is a life-saving treatment. However, if you are on dialysis long enough, your body will degrade and, and you will, um, there are patients who have been on dialysis for so long that they don't really qualify for transplantation anymore because they're too weak. The doctors predict they probably won't survive the transplantation, um, which is why in some countries, um, doctors, and this also includes, um, let's say, Sweden, the Netherlands, the UK, where transplant professionals are encouraging so-called preemptive living donor kidney transplantations, mm -hmm. meaning that even before the dialysis treatment start, patients are encouraged to find a living kidney donor. Uh, and, and we see that the, the, the survival rates for um, patients who get a transplant even before starting dialysis are the best, it's the best option that you can actually have as a patient. In terms of the donations from non-living patients, why? I think I read somewhere that it was sixty percent or something like this of of people are on the registry for donations in, for example, the United States. Why is it that when, if that's true, why is it that despite large numbers of people being on the donation lists, it's not possible to get a kidney from someone who passes away? to someone who, who really needs it? Is, is it just that the, the people who t tend to die are already old themselves? Or is it that it's difficult just in the pipeline from you know, getting someone who's died quickly and quick enough to the operating room? What, what are the bottlenecks there? No, it's, it, it, it is really that as a global population, we are getting much and much older, which is a, a, an amazing, fa fantastic thing. I mean, back in the day, we would pass away at roughly maybe an average of 40 or 50. And now that number has increased a lot. However, the downside is that usually once you're above a certain age, you're also more likely to get um, cardiovascular, cardiovascular diseases, cancer, for instance. So these are all um, or usually contraindications uh, for deceased organ donation. So even if you are registered as a deceased organ donor, if you pass away at 70 with a heart problem, you're 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 not going to be a very suitable deceased organ donor, um, and um, the best deceased organ donors that we can get are those who are young and who who are in a very traumatic accident and pass away or let's say brain dead but still have a, a beating heart. Um, however, we do see that in many countries, road accidents, especially fatal ones, are decreasing, which is mm -hmm. a problem for those who are waiting especially if you're waiting for a heart or a lung, you know, for organs where there is no alternative of a living uh, organ. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, if, if you are that patient waiting, it's, it's, it's pretty rough. Um, mm. So it is not just only about your willingness to donate or about adopting presumed consent systems. Of course, these are very important things and they should happen and we encourage them all the time and we should do as much as possible to also increase deceased organ donation. Um, but in the end, it will never be enough to fulfill demand, especially not with kidneys. 
which is why more and more countries are now also performing living kidney donations. It makes me wonder, it, it, so for some patients, at least, the route, the sort of illegal route to purchasing an organ is just more efficient for them uh, than the legal route. And, and, and so if I was someone who was sitting on a dialysis machine or someone, for example, who, who has been recommended to, to receive an, a new organ prior to going on dialysis, the preemptive cases, what is, how, quickly, how quickly can, can the illegal system move? You know, from from me making my, you know, asking around and finally being on the the table in some other country. Yeah, that's a very important, very good question. Uh, but it's it's difficult to know the answer because we, we have spoken to so few patients who have actually bought organs. Um, so it is really something that we are still trying to to figure out. But we do know that even if you just go. To, on the internet, it's like a wild, wild west out there when it comes to advertisements for organ, um, for e for commercial or presumed illegal organ transplantations. There are so many ads, even on Facebook, of people just advertising their kidneys and saying they, they want to sell and they're just looking for a place or a clinic. And you can, in fact, see all these trails of messen messaging on these Facebook pages where you see very vague answers from people possibly even transplant clinics uh, answering these people and saying, oh, please send me a PM, please send me a PM. Uh, so it seems to be that even the internet is is a very important uh, f facilitator uh, for transplants abroad. Um, but uh, unfortunately, there are so few researchers that study the organ trade. There's roughly maybe only about five of us who conduct empirical qualitative fieldwork on the organ trade on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's just, it's far too little to actually expose these kind of issues and to answer questions like the ones that you're asking now. See, that's another thing I was wondering about, because if people are indeed putting out advertisement, there's sort of two <laughs> interesting follow-up questions, which is that uh, if, if people are putting out adver advertisements for their own organs, then number one, it makes makes me think that if, if people can actually find these advertisements, then so can law enforcement. And uh, this must be an avenue through which, you know, you take down whatever these networks are. But if you say, uh, as you say, if there's only five people that are really looking into this or if, if the, the law enforcement isn't properly funded, is that the case? There's, there's just not enough resources to catch. Well, let me be clear that there's only five that I know of scientific researchers, you know, researching and pu publishing on this. I don't know about how many law enforcers are out there actually actively scrutinizing the internet for ad ad advertisements for organ sale. Uh, but we do know from studies amongst law enforcement, and we've had a lot of conferences where we spoke with police investigators and prosecutors and judges, and all of them say that they just don't know enough about this issue. Uh, many of them uh, told us that they didn't even know that organ removal could be a form of human trafficking. Uh, usually when one speaks of human trafficking, you speak of labor exportation, sexual exportation. It, many don't even know that it can also involve um, organ trafficking. Um, it's, it's just not on the radar uh, of, um, of enforcement. Um, there is a huge lack of knowledge, a huge lack of awareness, but also of um knowing like where to look 
And especially mm -hmm. the embeddedness within the medical sector is an issue because doctors with the secrecy oath are very likely not to report cases. If they would, they would be, you know, implicated themselves. Um, so this is obviously also a problem that needs to be tackled. I guess the second question that it sort of sparks in my mind is, are the sellers themselves, can they be prosecuted? Are they sort of um, criminally responsible for uh, selling their own organs? This this is another big problem. Uh, my, myself, but also others, we have been um, arguing for decriminalization of organ sale in order mm -hmm. to increase the willingness of victims to report abuse uh, in practice, it's going to be very difficult to distinguish a human trafficking victim from a kidney seller. Um, and the the fact that it is now criminalized to sell your kidney is a huge inhibitor for, for them to seek help when they need it. And we do know there are cases where uh, prosecutors, instead of going after the facilitators, the doctors, they went after the, the sellers and convicted them. So there was one seller who actually used the money that he earned with his kidney sale to pay his lawyer to get himself out of jail. Brilliant. That's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we know there is a reluctance amongst prosecutors to, uh, to prosecute medical elite, which in some countries they will be closely um, uh, closely intertwined with the political elite, you could say. And so it's probably just easier to go to the lower level uh, people involved, lower level recruiters, lower level brokers, mm -hmm. including also sellers. Do you know with this particular case of the seller who had to spend his money on a lawyer or her lawyer, did they end up getting convicted? What, what was the outcome of that case? Do you, do you happen to know? Yeah, I think he had to pay a fine. Yeah, a huge fine. It was either the fine or, or spending time in jail. So he lost yeah. money and his presumably and his kidney. kidney. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And <laughs> and I I don't think the system was ever designed like this. I mean, if 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 you look at how if you look at the arguments of the World World Health Organization, the reasons why it prohibits payments for organs, it is to protect those um, poor and vulnerable uh, against selling. So I, I don't think they ever intended to prosecute kidney sellers, but just to pr protect or prevent them from selling. But it, it does raise all these kinds of moral questions on the efficacy of prohibition. Hmm. I suppose it's very similar in some ways to other crimes of demand, like prostitution, weapons, drugs, this sort of thing. It, it, would you say, so is your... Is, is it in your view that sort of prohibition is really constructing these criminal networks and, and creating more problems? Or, or, or at least are there, yeah, is it, do you think prohibition itself is creating a bigger problem than it's solving? Well, it is an important question that needs to be studied. And Sean Collin was actually, or has been so far, the only one to study this in a, in a rigorous long-term way because he was traveling to, to and from Egypt between 2014 and 2020. Um, and during this time, the Egyptian authorities would uh, increase penalties against organ trading. They would increase penalties against uh, people smuggling. And uh, they also tightened or were encouraged by the EU to tighten migration um, laws. 
Um, and during this period, Sean um, found that the trade became more violent, it became more organized, it went more underground. Um, but there were definitely more violent means of recruitment of kidney sellers as a result of these stricter laws. Um, all of them also involving stricter penalties for organ selling, um, mm-hmm. which only um, worsened the situation uh, and the outcomes for those who eventually did sell their kidney. Um, we would need better research or, or more of that kind of research in other parts of the world to assess whether this happens in other places as well. I'm not sure if all countries should just completely decriminalize the entire organ trade. I, I don't know if that would, I don't think that would be an ethical solution. It really much depends also on how strong a government is, where it ranks on the Transparency International's Corruption Index. It depends on a, a lot of uh, factors. But Iran is an, is an important country to look at for how it can be done differently, because they uh, do reward, they do pay living kidney donors in return for their kidney. And in this con- in this country, if you look at the research that has been conducting there, um, you see there is much less exportation being reported by kidney sellers, because it is not de- it, it is not criminalized. As a result of that, they are properly screened beforehand um, because there is not a black market or at least not a black market within hospitals um, because it is a, you are allowed to sell into the system these donors are taken care of medically speaking both before and after their donation they have access to follow-up treatment um, in, in case there is abuse or exploitation they can safely report that without mm-hmm. running the risk of being convicted themselves some small small factors like this can already make a huge impact. Um, and I do know that in, in Iran, there are also some areas where they do prohibit certain transactions between donors and recipients. For instance, in Shiraz, um, they do still criminalize payments. Um, but overall, what you do see is that donor sellers seem to be much better off there rather than if you compare it to other countries where there are black markets flourishing. Have there been interviews done with donors, for example, in Iran uh, sellers to see whether in those cases they're happy with the outcome? Is it? Uh, yes. So there has been brilliant research by Sihrit Fry Revere. She is from the US, but she spent a long time in Iran and she traveled throughout the entire country throughout all of the different regions where they have different laws and policies in place. And so she is the the only researcher that I know of that until now has actually been uh, presenting data rigorously in a qualitative manner from all over the country. Um, And you do see mixed reports. So there and and this is because Iran allows. So there is a a state payment from the government, the equivalent of four thousand US dollars that each donor seller will receive from the government. Um, But then besides that, the government does kind of tolerate transactions between donors and recipients in which they negotiate further. So they drive that price further up. And then it Mm -hmm. really depends on the negotiation skills of the donor and how wealthy the the recipient is, what the outcome will be of that negotiation. And you, you do see issues arise there. Um, you do see problems emerge there sometimes where donors are regretting their decision, claiming that they should have asked more for their kidney, 
because they heard that so-and-so received much more and he or she was, was, would feel cheated. But then you also hear reports of donors and recipients who become best friends and didn't know each other beforehand, but after the donation, you know, um, became very closely intertwined in each other's lives and would go for weekly dinners. And uh, so it's, 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 a, it's a lot of mixed reports. Yeah. It's interesting that sort of those complaints are sort of the best sort of complaints you could imagine because if they're complaining about the operation from a financial perspective rather than for example a health outcome yeah uh, that that that's that's much a much better position to be in right yeah yeah although i have to say if you read studies from other countries so from the black market where people sell illegally their kidneys they always they also you very frequently will firstly complain about the fact that they were deceived in with the mm -hmm. promised amount um and on, on the black market there is much more deceit than in iran so in, in iran they at least will get you know at least four thousand dollars if not more whilst on the black market mm -hmm. it's very often the case that they don't get anything at all mm. so so I'm, I'm i'm imagining that the the organized networks would look for people in the same sorts of areas. Wouldn't it become common knowledge in those areas that, hey, if you do this, you won't get your money? And is it, this is this doesn't sound very sensible from the perspective of yeah. uh, sourcing more organs. I'm not aware of any studies actually that address this factor amongst seller populations. I do know that in the Philippines, there was a study where um, they did receive money um, and this was well known. So sellers actually kind of became recruiters. Um, they went to their neighbors and said, hey, I sold my kidney a few weeks ago. I got a good deal. Um, it, you know, you can sell your kidney too. If you do, you help me a little bit as well. So they would actually get commission. Um, no. So and this is something that we do see on the black market where sellers become recruiters themselves, um, which brings into play a whole bunch of other moral questions about how to regard you know the trade mm. um so what we do know that it, in certain places in the world where it seems to actually only in intensify so where uh people who have successfully sold their kidney and received some money for it will actually lead to their neighbors doing the same mm -hmm. i i haven't heard of cases where um or not yet where it would be a deterrent for others not to sell but it is an important question that you raised yeah so do you, do you find locations where there are whole villages i mean you hear these stories in the media but i'm wondering how true they are yeah yeah in the philippines in and pakistan yes wow yeah whole villages and then do you then see all sorts of follow-up health complications in those villages i mean if if these operations are widespread in those areas then i mean it's a bit horrible to say you must be able to develop nice statistics in in those areas on the outcomes of these operations it that that is i mean we know that there is no follow-up care usually given to donors um and in in, in these specific cases uh, I've spoken to some sellers who also said that it was too expensive for them to go to the hospital to arrange for follow-up care, because if they would, you know, they they would spend a day with the local bus to travel into the city and go and see a doctor there, which they probably can't afford in the first place. Um, and this particular seller was explaining to me how he was going to lose a full day of income 
um, if he would um, spend time getting, you know, follow-up treatment for his remaining kidney. Um, mm. So this is an issue, obviously, yeah. But so these issues are not seen in Iran because the system itself, the the, the state itself oversees uh, the transactions. What? Why is it? See, I don't know whether this is a good or a bad <laughs> thing. I'm sort of curious about, um, you know, Iran is usually seen as being a fairly hardline country, like not a ter- terribly liberal and progressive country. Why? Why is it that? Iran of all countries has these sort of systems in place? First, to be clear on Iran, they they do give follow-up treatment for donors. And I think they cover the cost of follow-up treatment for donors up to one year after the donation. After that, unfortunately, donors, I think, from what I remember reading, they would have to cover these costs for themselves out of pocket. So this is, you know, one of the criticisms that the Iranian model does get. Uh, so just to kind of get any confusion out of the way, it's not a system that is designed to give long-term uh, follow-up treatment for the rest of their lives. Um, but it's, to be honest, I don't really know exactly why Iran chose um, uh, to reward their living kidney donors. I do know that historically they've always relied on living kidney donation, but this goes for many countries where there is a reluctance amongst populations to decease, to um, donate organs after death. Um, but I'm not sure exactly why Iran chose to uh, reward. One ex- explanation could be is that they just simply didn't really care so much about what the World Health Organization had to say. And uh, they do claim to be the only country in the world with uh, uh, kidney transplantation programs and no wait list. Do you think that in the West we have a poorly informed moral framework for for dealing with the organ trade? In other words, do you think... Do you, do you think our prohibition is evidence-based or is it really just sort of a knee-jerk reaction to something that really feels bad? It is definitely not evidence-based. It is based on moral condemn- condemnation. Uh, the, pro- pro- the prohibition of payments for organs uh, was first proclaimed uh, or announced in the 1987 World Health Assembly Resolution of the WHO. And at that time, the technology of transplantation wasn't as advanced as it is now. So there wasn't that much, there weren't that many transplantations, there wasn't that much demand, and there was maybe one report of organ trading. Uh, We didn't have any reports or evidence of organ trading even taking place. And if it was, it was very few, very little. Um, Now, 40 years later, it's an entirely different situation, but Already since the late 1980s, there has been critique of the prohibition where ethicists, philosophers, transplant professionals uh, would scrutinize the arguments behind prohibition and say, wait a minute, we should discuss this. These reasons are not as evident as they appear to be. Let's, for instance, look at the argument that all organ donations should be altruistic. Uh, what does it mean to be altruistic? Uh, um, how can you prove that a donor is an altruistic donor? And if a donor sells his or her kidney to to feed his children or to send his children to school, these can be very altruistic reasons. Perhaps payments and altruism can go hand in hand. And there are countless examples of humanitarian aid workers, uh, people in the military, uh, firemen, uh, 
who receive or earn quite some money, but then also do very important altruistic uh, work. Um, so this whole idea that it should be altruism-based has been critiqued from the start. Um, the argument that prohibition will prevent organ trade is also flawed. You can argue the same, um, that prohibition can cause organ trade because it increases the value of organs and makes them more lucrative to sell and buy, which is what we are now seeing in some places in the world where criminal networks have, have taken opportunity um, of this. Um, the idea also that we commodify our bodies if we put a price on organs or that we reduce or lose our dignity or, or value by doing so is also an important question that we should ask. Do you indeed feel less valuable or less worthy if, if you sell your kidney, and, but also have saved a person's life? Um, mm -hmm. There's been interviews in the US with people who secretively sold their kidney and said, yeah, I, I saved the man's life, but I also got some money out, out of it. I don't feel like, you know, a very bad, immoral person. Um, and then there's the economic argument where um, e economists have calculated that one successful living kidney donation saves society up to $80,000 a year because a life is saved. So a patient can go back to work and contribute to society and you save the very high and expensive dialysis costs. And with one living kidney donation, a lot of people benefit. It's not just the patient or the health insurance company that benefits. It's also um, the doctors, um, even at our uh, center, at the Erasmus Medical Center where I work, uh, we are quite proud of the number of living kidney donations that we perform every year. These numbers are proudly presented at transplant conferences. The transplant surgeons who work at our center have a very good portfolio because they or living kidney transplants every year. So the argument goes that, you know, a lot of people benefit from one living kidney donation. Then wh why shouldn't the kidney donor him or herself be allowed to benefit? And we were, especially in, in the West, we've been so strict about this that until a few years ago, it was even difficult for living kidney donors to have their travel costs compensated to the hospital. Even just covering those costs for a long time was considered like, oh, we should be careful doing so because it might be trade. And now that has thankfully all been arranged for and it's, it's not considered illegal payments if you reimburse costs related to the donation procedure. But if you unpack every single argument that has been made in support of prohibition and you discuss this argument, uh, and I do that all the time with students and, and transplant doctors, um, and to, you know, to not only think about the pros of prohibition, but also the cons, then you see that there is a shift in the thinking taking place. Mm -hmm where it's not it's no longer just an emotional like reaction like oh no but we should prohibit pro prohibit because we 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 feel so bad about it you see a shift where the rational thinking kind of gets going and where you're like oh yeah but wait a minute yeah it doesn't make complete sense um mm. or that there, there might be good reasons to explore alternatives to prohibition the thing that so I discussed this conversation with a few people beforehand and the thing that kept cropping up and although I ran through some of these arguments, these counter arguments with people, the thing that people would often bring up is that the worry that 
Predominantly, it's going to be people who are poorer, who have their organs flowing in the direction of people who are richer. And that um, if you incentivize, if you, if you provide any incentives, then these incentives will basically drive this sort of uh, movement from poor to rich. And yeah. what, what's, sort of, what's your position on this sort of an argument? That that is the most common heard argument, um, and rightfully so. And I can un understand how people have a lot of problems with this I idea. Um, there was a recent survey in the US, uh, a, br a brilliant survey done by uh, pr Professor Mario Massis from Johns Hopkins. And um, he also found that, uh, or he actually found that 70% of the US citizens was in favor of rewarding living kidney donors. If this payment would elim eliminate transplant wait lists and if patients themselves would not have to pay. So the argument of creating inequality is something that none of us seems to want. Um, I would definitely not want to have such kind of a system. And philosophers have for many years now been um, even advising governments about this, stating that perhaps the most ethical way would be to adopt a so-called monopsonistic market where you have only one government or one government body that pays the same amount to all living kidney donors and also ensures that the allocation of kidneys is done in the same ethical way as is done already now and that donors and recipients will never be able to meet each other so you do it completely mm -hmm. anonymously and we know this is possible because we already conduct living kidney donations anonymously in several countries. Um, and the argument that poor people would never be allowed to sell, you have to ask yourself why, like why wouldn't we want them to sell? Is it because donating your kidney is so risky? But if that would be the case, then why are we allowing it to happen all over the world, including by poor donors who are do donating their kidneys to their family members, let's say. Being poor is not, a contraindication to living kidney donation. Uh, some would also say that's probably quite paternalistic to say that only the rich people are allowed to sell um, and that people are poor people are too poor to make voluntary decisions for themselves. And you could also think of safeguards to put in place. So to let's say give them the opportunity or a lot of time to really think about whether they really want to do this. So if you would devise such a system um, to at least build in, build in a long time period where they get all the proper information they need to really think it through. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm even a proponent of implementing a, such a system blindly. I've always said that we should at least try, that we should at least do some kind of trial or experiment very locally or within a very mm -hmm. small country or region and to really evaluate and monitor it very, very thoroughly and especially to get information about the individual experiences from both patients and donors because what how they feel about this kind of system is probably the most important aspect that we should try to find out in addition to the transplant professionals, of course. But... Um, uh, uh, until we try this, or unless we try this, we will never actually know whether our arguments against it are valid. Okay, so 
let's say for example, we wanted to put forward some regulation. Um, we wanted to step back from a, from a pure prohibition approach and we want to start thinking constructively about how to build a system that actually functions and minimizes suffering and uh, reduces exploitation and so on. What are some of the steps that you would recommend at least trialing or, or looking for ev evidence-based? Um, yeah, what, 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 is, what is the sort of evidence-based approach that you would want to trial <laughs> uh, in Outline? Well, let's start with deceased organ donation. I think that should always mm -hmm. be encouraged. Um, and uh, a presumed consent system, I think, I mean, of course, it will still not be enough to get enough organs, but at least, you know, implement that as a country. In addition to that, you can also encourage people to want to donate if you are, you know, hesitant. But if you, let's say, um, live in a country where there is not a presumed consent system, um, where you kind of reward people if they decide to become organ donors after death. You can reward them, let's say, with uh, if they want to get a passport, you know, sometimes there's some kind of fee involved in getting that. You can, you know, give that them for free. Same with the fee for a driver's license. Or you could give the family members of a deceased donor uh, the co like cover the costs of the funeral, let's say. So these are like small incentives that you could consider doing. Um, it also really depends, or another important factor is having a good infrastructure for deceased organ donation. I think even more important than the law is having a good infrastructure in place, a good efficient hospital system um, that gives priority to deceased organ donation to transplantations. Um, then when you look at living organ donation and specifically living kidney donation, um, I'm not going to talk about other types of living organ donations because those are much more risky procedures. But for kidneys, um, I would say a trial. Um, mm -hmm. If there is, if you as a country already conduct so many living kidney donor transplantations, um, and you have a relatively short waiting list, then I don't think that country should be the first to try this. It would make most sense to, to start in a country with a very long wait list. Uh, for instance, in the US, um, which has a huge wait list for um, kidney transplantations. Um, that, that for me would make most sense to do a trial there, mm -hmm. but then in a small part, not just in the entire country, but in, in a small state. Uh, to conduct a trial on to see what kind of in, in incentives would work. And this could be monetary, a lump sum, but you can also think of um, installments uh, rather than just giving one lump sum directly uh, or instantly. Uh, or you can think of non-monetary aspects, let's say a free health insurance for life, um, which if you look at it in the long term can amounts to a lot of money. Um, and to just really see and test and evaluate whether such a system would have more benefits than the current prohibitionist system. Um, so that, yeah, that would be a, a good starting point in my view. I guess also if you offered people free health insurance, 
it might have the outcome that they actually have an extended life after donation or improved health after donation, particularly if they were not in a bracket that uh, it depends on the country, of course, but uh, particularly if they're in a bracket that doesn't have uh, a certain level of care. Yeah. Is there is there any risk though that you'll you know that you put the you make the incentive too great or or another sort of risk i can imagine is your country or your region becoming a, as we said before a hot spot where people then fly in and, and what sort of regulations would you put in place to f- first of all limit the uh, incentive and pre- prevent those sort of uh, tourism yeah. <laughs> aspect of this well to 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 answer your latter question um all people that have advised for a so-called monopsonistic incentivized living kidney donation system have said that it should never go across boundaries so it should be for nationals only or people residing within that territory only not meant for people from outside uh which shouldn't be too difficult to mo- to monitor if you are strictly regulating it or controlling it from a government perspective. Um, and with regards to the incentive, what is I think important is two things. First of all, ask the general public wh- what do they prefer. In the U.S., this has been asked in several surveys. I believe most U.S. citizens said they thought fifty thousand U.S. dollars would be an adequate uh, incentive. Whilst in Europe, Europeans are quite against the idea of a lump sum. They prefer a free lifelong health insurance. So I would say firstly, ask the public what they want or think, and also make sure you have a task force filled with very bright people, including economists who uh, really think about these things. And um, and it would be part of the testing, the trial, to maybe even try out different types of incentives. One thing I wonder about is whether this sort of approach would also reduce the pressure on family members to donate when they may may not want to. So right now, for instance, where there are long wait times and where supply is not good, there may be family members who really don't want to donate an organ but really feel for, yeah. for familial ties or for whatever reason that they really have to. Um, and so th- this, this might have... <laughs> sort of <laughs> paradoxically it might actually reduce those feelings of pressure having a yeah. system in place which allows definitely definitely there have been some patients who've said that if they could choose they would prefer a kidney from an anonymous donor rather than from a close relative um exactly for that reason yeah it's yeah you're absolutely right it makes me wonder, is that another reason that people try, decide to go the illegal route today because they don't want to place pressure on their own family? Some, some patients, any... yeah, yeah, yeah. So, some patients that we spoke to did say this, yeah. I've, I forgot to mention that earlier, but yeah. So they actually, and maybe they even do it uh, secretly behind their family's back uh, in these circumstances as well. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know about that. <laughs> I, I don't There's know. There's no numbers on that. No. Okay, so, so, so the idea then, basically, if I understand correctly, is um, to separate trafficking from commercialization to start with, yes. and but the idea is that trafficking is still illegal. That's so all all the the so 
you put laws in place which stop people from crossing boundaries. So for example, you can only have um, a donation from someone who's from your country, for instance. Um, and then you, you, you allow for commercialized trade, which would hopefully stop people from, first of all, being pressured, uh, f- from not getting the money they're promised. So, so this is sort of the approach. It's, exactly. it's not that it's not that you want to legalize trafficking. It's what, that you want to legalize <laughs> the trade aspect. Exactly. Yeah, and still have penal measures in place for any kind of harm that we find unacceptable within that system, including exploitation or illegal profit making from some individual doctors. Who knows? Like there, there would still be penalties in place. The the rationale is that. Currently, we rely too heavily on on a criminal justice response to everything that we find, at least from the West, morally condemnable. Um, condemnable, but um, that is not a solution to a demand-driven activity, um, and not all all of those activities involve social harm. Um, not all of those organ trading activities could be considered a crime. There's a different mm-hmm way of approaching that in my view can i ask um what has been the response so when when you okay so from what i understand um an important part of what you're saying is that it should be evidence-based and so ultimately you want to see from the evidence itself what leads to harm reduction and that should be the driving force rather than some um moralistic knee-jerk reaction based on you know, some rules that were put in place 30 years ago and might be over difficult to overturn. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let me ask, what has the response been? So when when you talk about this with people, do you do you tend to see people act nev- negatively towards uh, the proposals that you're suggesting? Yeah, very much so. It, you see both. Uh, so there's the people... Uh, there's people who say, no, we should never want to even think about such a system. It, it's a sliding scale. Uh, it's immoral to put any kind of price on, on body parts, including organs. Um, and there's still more, maybe the utilitarian, utilitarian view of people who say, but wait, we already have huge patient mortality rates. We have excessive black market abuses. Maybe the system would have a bit, you know, a bit more benefits or more harm reduction approach. Um, so it's it's quite uh, what's the word you see quite a divided uh, uh, situation where you where there's two groups uh, and maybe a smaller group in the middle uh, which might include me that says but wait maybe we should just first try it and maybe not implement it everywhere and not have some kind of free trade like I'm completely against even that idea but to at least uh, start small and do experiments. And I guess also you can do these experiments passively because there are places like Iran that already are running systems that are quite different to, to that of the West. Iran would have been the best test model if it didn't condone transactions between donors and recipients. Um, hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that that's something that I wouldn't advise any government to do. Um, so it's very difficult to, to perhaps try this in Iran unless they decide to um, uh, for, forbid um, transactions between donors and recipients. But so 
let me, so I, I want to sort of wrap up the conversation then with an eye for the future. And so, do, so do you think, do you think this is something that's going to come about through regulation? Do, do you think governments uh, are, are really going to be driven towards regulation and, and removing um, sort of the arbitrary, sort of the um, complete ban rather? Or do you think this is something that's going to really be solved, for example, by new technology? For, for example, you could have um, new te technology where you can generate organs without needing exactly. uh, donors. Do, do, which, which is going to come first in your mind? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's very it's a good. I mean, I was actually going to talk about technology because it's, it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen because we don't really know what technology is going to do. But this year, we, we've had some breakthrough xenotransplantations where doctors in the US were transplanting um, kidneys and hearts from pigs into humans. Um, uh, we have 3D printing. We have uh, regenerative medicine or, or organs being grown from stem cells, or at least very small experiments in doing that. Um, we have, um, even in the Netherlands, our Kidney Foundation is developing a prototype or is working towards doing that, uh, like a machine kind of kidney that you can actually carry or put in your body. I don't even know exactly how it works, but there's all these amazing uh, initiatives that are being undertaken that could change history forever. Um, so it is very difficult to predict what's, what's going to happen. Um, and even if those technologies would create a drastic change, then it is an interesting question that what would that mean for criminologists? Like what kind of issues are we going to see then um, mm. that are going to arise? So it's, it's, it's almost impossible for me to answer your question about what's going to happen in the future. But so, maintaining the status quo would mean millions of continued patient deaths. Mm. But so we could we could have a situation where we don't even have to approach the moral questions. We would, the technology would just remove the need for that discussion if if things go really well. No, I, I think technology will always create new moral questions. <laughs> That's what I think. We're we're all we're always going to need lawyers and philosophers. I think, yeah. <laughs> hmm. And and so let me let me finish with just uh, your sort of dream for the future in this field. Then, if 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 you so you started off, you, you finish your um, uh, PhD, and, and then you you continued on with with uh, research. What would be sort of the dream thing for you to uncover or for you to put forward? Um, the, the dream outcome for your research. On the short term, that would be to to make a trial happen not in the mm. netherlands i think but in in the us mm. yeah yeah to make a trial happen to actually have a task force of of people there including policymakers government officials who are willing to try it and there's been discussions in new york and in some other places in the us including i think amongst the american society of transplantation and um, the american transplantation uh, surgeon society where they were um, yeah discussing this so um, that that would be something that I would definitely want to um, be part of. To get some actual numbers on the discussion. Yeah, to be one of the researchers in that system, definitely. Yeah. Well, Frederica, it's been an absolute pleasure.
uh, for me as well. And thank you so much. I, I very much enjoyed um, this conversation and uh, answering uh, the very, very brilliant questions. Thanks very much. It's it's such a you know I, I I actually with these with this talk I actually um, may as well just um, so in in this talk I I actually struggled a little bit because when I first when I first started reading about the I, I thought I understood um, at least the baseline of the discussion but actually it's it's much more complicated really um, I I, ha I hadn't really. Well, to start with, I spent some time trying to empathize with the sellers um, because really it, it, you have people on both sides of the equation who are actually suffering, right? Um, the, you have these, these two groups of people, the, the people who are dying and don't want to die and who are in terrible pain potentially and suffering because of dialysis, you know, the dialysis machine and, and the protocol they have to go through. And on the other, you have people who are, may have severe financial strain they they live in terrible circumstances and they see this as an opportunity to get out of the the situation they're in and, and it might be the only opportunity they can see so you, you have these people who really want to be together but legally um it's such a gray uh issue that there's no legal conduit for them uh in today's society and that's something i hadn't really I hadn't really visualized both sides of the discussion as being sort of victims, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. No, it's, I mean, they can be both victims and perpetrators. Mm. Yeah. And, and have you had, have you had interviews with also the sellers? Not yet. It's, it's just mean mainly law enforcement and buyers. Yeah, by uh, and transplant doctors. Okay, uh, wh why why is that? Is it um, they're, they're just easier to get in contact with, or what? no, they're harder. So most studies that have been performed on the organ trade were performed amongst organ sellers. And when I started with my PhD research, I actually wanted to fill the void. So I consciously chose not to interview sellers because I felt we needed to know something about the patients. There were no studies being done on buyers. Also, no studies on or amongst transplant professionals about their experiences with the organ trade. Um, so I deliberately chose parts of the organ trading chain that hadn't been covered by other re researchers. Mm -hmm. um, and it's generally easier to find organ sellers than it is to find buyers and doctors. And because... even more because they feel less criminally at risk or that so it's, it's they're in a more powerful position and so they can hide themselves or what's if you're not working in the medical sector it's very difficult to talk to patients and doctors period um mm -hmm. and it really helped me that i worked in transplantation or still do because it's a relatively small community we all know each other internationally is even a relatively small community um, so it was a little bit easier for me, I think, than for outsiders to uh, to find patients. And I needed the support of their doctors to speak to the patients. So it's not like you can just approach patients directly. You need to do it through their doctors. So in our case, all of our doctors knew exactly which patients had gone abroad. Hmm. So they would ask patients for their consent 
to, to speak with us. Um, and those doctors were willing to help us because we know them personally. Uh, so that that's the main reason, I think, is this feasibility for, for me is a bit easier because of me working in the transplantation field. Mm-hmm. Um, so in other words, other people hadn't touched on this because presumably non-disclosure agreements or sort of the whatever those protections are that doctors have yeah. in place which prevent them from talking about their patients didn't yeah. allow access to previous researchers. Yeah. And then you sort of had this uh, this opportunity that wasn't there before. Yeah, and there was a Swedish researcher as well who interviewed patients also with the help of Swedish transplant surgeons. And then we had a collaborator in northern Macedonia um, who uh, is a nephrologist and he actually interviewed his his own patients who had gone abroad. So, yeah, uh, but no one else has really done this. No, it's, it's very difficult or at least rare to find data on this. And so when, when you spoke to individual patients, was it, um, it was, do you think there's a bias in the ones that came forward, the ones that decided they wanted to speak with you? Um, why were they more willing than the others was, I, I think I read in, in, uh, something you wrote that the people who had problems with their transplants were more likely to come forwards. Because whereas the ones that didn't have problems wanted to keep quiet, or maybe I've misread that. Yeah, I'm trying to remember exactly because it's been a while and we really didn't manage to interview that many patients. And I think most of them didn't really regard their transplantation as something illegal or immoral. Mm -hmm. So they were more open to speak about it. but to be honest, the details are kind of lost to me now. I'm trying to remember exactly the mm. specific traits of these patients, like why they approached us. But I think it was the way that we framed it, the way that we approached them was really to like to speak about their transportation abroad and um, how exactly that went. So it we, we, we didn't even frame it as something illegal or criminal because we didn't want to assume that they had done something criminal or illegal. All we knew was that they had received a transplant abroad and it was unclear to us who their donors were. Um, but in, in high, like for the future, to because one of our aims is to interview more patients, we wouldn't do it just with a one-on-one interview. In, interview we would really probably take on a very different approach I mean, another thing is, uh, so right now, if I, if I was dying and I needed a kidney right now, it would be a massive moral problem for me because I'd have to decide, look, I, I'm going to die if I don't take this, but in the current situation, in the current legal framework, this kidney, if I do this, you know, if I pay for it, it's going to come from someone who is not going to receive treatment who um, does not have a good, you know, statistically that they're not, their outcome is not going to be as good if this was done through a legal channel. And and so I have this massive moral problem. Whereas if there was a system in place where I knew that the donor was going to be looked after, they do receive the money that uh, they thought they were going to get, they get adequate care they they have other incentives which are actually going to help them in life 
then the moral issue is a completely different story. It's it's something that I might be able to accept and or, or maybe even happily accept depending on the circumstances. And I think maybe that's something that is missing from the discussion because no one imagines themselves being the person there lying on either bed, I guess. Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. yeah. Well, in any case, I should let you go. <laughs> Frederica, it's, it's, it's a, as I said in our first discussion, I love the fact that you're actually putting forward solutions because it's, it's very, um, or, or proposing solutions because it's very easy to point out problems. Uh, it's much, it's a much, much harder job <laughs> to actually put down um, concrete suggestions. So anyway, I, I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. <laughs>